All right, Alexander, let's do an update as to what is going on in Ukraine. Let's start things off with what is going on on the ground. One, one road remains uh, towards Bakhmut for the Ukraine military, and that's going to probably come within uh, an operational encirclement, Bakhmut within, I don't know, it, it, it's, it's coming, and it, it's coming pretty, pretty fast, it seems, but uh, it's... It's looking like uh, Bakhmut is, is about to fall under uh, an encirclement of some sorts. Uh, we also have a lot of articles from Collective West Mainstream Media talking about how Ukraine is indeed losing. We have an article from Politico which says that everybody should just forget about Crimea. This is nonsense. It's not going to happen. And we have many, many more articles talking about how Ukraine is losing in one way or another, not only from U.S. media, but also from German media as well. So um, that's that's the narrative shift, and it is a narrative shift that is coming out of the collective West. We should recognize that. And and uh, there was also a timeline. That's what I wanted to say before I pass it off to you. We're also starting to hear the collective West actually put a timeline on this war, and they're pegging it down to the summer. And I think that's also a narrative shift. They're actually saying that this war will come to an end in one, one way or another. Who knows how it's going to come to an end, but one way or another, it's going to end with some sort of Russian victory by the summer. No one knows how it's going to look, what, what exact month or day, but we actually have now a type, of, a type of timeline that is being defined by the collective West media, and I'm sure they're getting their information from various sources at the Pentagon and perhaps the Department of State and who knows where else. Anyway, uh, let's start with what's going on on the ground and absolutely. move well, from there. Well, absolutely. As you said, one, one road left that they can use to keep their troops in Bakhmut supplied. And, you know, this is now appearing in all sorts of places. I read it in the Financial Times, for example. There was a big article just the other day, day, day ago, about, you know, the situation in Bakhmut they conceded it's only one road left. And uh, that road is already being shelled. It's not yet been cut. In fact, there's another road also that's been not yet been cut, but that road is now so heavily shelled that the Ukrainians, to all intents and purposes, can't use it. And the, the one road they can still just about use, that's now being also being shelled. And there's two villages to the north of Bakhmut, um, Krasnaya Gora and Paraska, Paraskovievke, to give them their names. Um, the Russians are attacking those. They're very close to capturing them. Once they're capturing them, capture those roads, that, that road is also closed. And the most ominous sign for me, for the Ukrainians, is a statement by Yevgeny Prigozhin, who is the head of the Wagner organization, which is the spearhead force that's, you know, leading the attacks in Bakhmut. It's not the only force, but it's the spearhead. Now, what Prigozhin always does is on the eve of a place being encircled or captured, he comes out and says the place has not been encircled or captured. Wait for confirmation from me. He always says that. And then a few days later, you learn that it's either been encircled or captured. He did that recently in Solidar. He's done that in several other places. And he's just said that about Bakhmut. 
He said, it's not yet encircled. Wait for me. I'm going to confirm it very soon. And sure enough, you can expect that within, we're not going to guess the timeline, but it's coming. I mean, that's now absolutely clear. And it's also clear that Ukraine has not withdrawn its troops from Bakhmut. I, there were reports, yes, uh, uh, two days ago that they were withdrawing, but apparently they're still there. They're reinforcing, if anything, the uh, head, one of one of Zelensky's advisors, a man called Podolyak, who said that they've paid a very high cost for defending Bakhmut. But nonetheless, they're still defending Bakhmut. And this war of attrition that Ukraine has allowed the Russians to wage in Bakhmut turned out so much to the Russians' advantage, and yet the Ukrainians continued to allow the Russians to continue to wage it. They'd, they've disregarded advice from the US to pull their troops back. The articles in Bloomberg saying they should pull back, that article in the Financial Times that I was talking about also said basically that they should pull back. They haven't done it, so it looks as if more than likely we're going to have a large number of Ukrainian troops encircled within the next few days. Now, lots of going on in other places. Russian offensive of some kind in near Kremenaya, which is further north of Bakhmut. Uh, Russians, the Russians also closing in on another town called Seversk, which is part of the same defense line as Bakhmut. Indications that the Ukrainian troops in Seversk could soon be encircled also, um, and continued Russian pressure further south in a place called Vugledar. We've discussed this at length, Ugledar. Um, the Russians still seem to be working towards encircling that place too. But overall, the story is of heavy fighting in Donbass, Ukraine under pressure on multiple places, and the Russians increasing that pressure all the time. But note, and it's the same point that we've made before, they haven't yet committed their main force. The hundreds of thousands of troops that they're gathering, they haven't yet committed them to the battle. All this pressure is being mounted by units of the Russian military, if you include the Wagner organization as part of the Russian military, which I do, which have been there in the battle zones for many, many months now. The main forces, these hundreds of thousands of men, half a million men, they haven't yet been committed. And it's spooking the Ukrainians out. Uh, Reznikov, the defense minister, is warning that there's going to be a big Russian offensive um, in February, on the 24th of February. I've no idea about that, you know, the timeline that he's talking about. And as you said, growing, growing gloom on the part of Western commentators and followers of the war. And you mentioned various articles. For me, the most interesting one of all is one that has come out from The Guardian. Now, The Guardian, the British newspaper, one of the, perhaps the single most enthusiastic supporter of Ukraine throughout the war, and it admits that the war is going badly for Ukraine. It talks about, it's the first one to sort of admit that Ukraine is now reduced to 
rounding up people on the streets to fill up the numbers of its troops. It's talked about concern about the level of suicide amongst Ukrainian soldiers as a result of battlefield stress. And it says that if the war continues for very much longer, Ukraine's military might collapse. And I'll just read what it says. If the fighting does run through 2023, it means Ukraine has not been able to achieve its own military breakthrough and the willingness of its forces to realize to risk their lives will be tested. And Russia's latest frontline muscle flexing shows the invaders may be in a better position in the early spring than the Ukrainian defenders waiting loyally for their tanks to arrive. So it seems to be preparing the Guardian readership for a Ukrainian collapse. And I looked at the Guardian this morning, that article I've just mentioned was published yesterday. Ukrainian coverage has virtually van vanished from the Guardian today. I mean, it's really quite striking to see the sudden change of mood. And it's, of course, there all across the media as well. And I think the other thing is tanks. Everybody now seems to accept these tanks are not going to be making a difference. Lots of talk about fighter jets. Um, the British government has caught, poured cold water over this idea. It said that it takes 35 months to train a pilot to operate an F-16. Ukraine doesn't have 35 months. Right. Tanks without air support. And, uh, and supposedly the, the narrative was that Ukraine had a thousand Soviet tanks. Well, where are those Soviet tanks? Where are those Soviet tanks? Well, indeed, there was the narrative that you, yeah, and then there was a, and then there was the narrative that Ukraine's going to march on, on towards Crimea. We were hearing that just from Bed Hodges, this, this military expert, you know, commander or general of uh, NATO in Europe, who was just saying two weeks ago that the plan is Melitopol, then from Melitopol, you strike out towards Crimea. That, that narrative has been blown apart as well. Well, indeed, there was a briefing by the Pentagon of the House Armed Services Committee, and they told them this isn't going to happen, basically. I mean, you know, there was, uh, uh, um, the, you know, there's no realistic chance of Ukraine recapturing Crimea, um, which, by the way, calls into question the whole logic of the offensive towards Melitopol. And there's been a cluster of articles in the British media through, again, supporters of the war. I mean, these are people who supported Ukraine, people like, you know, Hamish de Breton Gordon, strange name, but he's a British tank officer. He was enthusiastic for supplying Ukraine with tanks, but he now says, you know, if, you, if they're going to go on the offensive, they can't just do it with tanks, certainly not the numbers of tanks that Britain and that the West is supplying. They need air cover as well. And another article in the Telegraph by another journalist there, a man called Con Coughlin, you can't operate tanks without air cover. I've seen other people make exactly that point. The fact is, Ukraine can't operate F-16s. It's, it's simply not practical. The British government has said as much. And for the moment, there is no desire on the part of Western governments to commit their own air forces to this battle. 
taking on the Russian air defense system, the most effective in the world, losing fighter planes. It would be a terrible call. And the escalatory risks are just off the scale in doing that. So uh, this, this whole story of getting the tanks to Ukraine seems to have brought everybody to the brink. And now they're taking a step back and thinking about what it means. And they've decided it really wasn't a good idea at all in the first place. And you can see people starting to pull back and this mood of pessimism now starting to take hold. On the subject of tanks, by the way, the German government has just announced that they're going to send Leopard 1 tanks to Ukraine. There's no ammunition for them. These were tanks developed in the 1950s, brought into service with Germany in the 1960s. And I read that it's got very thin armour, only fit for protection from, you know, heavy machine guns and cannons, you know, light cannons. It, it's simply not, this, these tanks would burn incredibly fast if they were ever deployed in Ukrainian battlefields. But that, the very fact that they're talking about Leopard 1s means that they're not going to send any more Leopard 2s, or at least that's what I think. Right. Uh, Putin gave a speech to commemorate the 80th, uh, um, the 80th anniversary, let's say, of the of the victory in Stalingrad, and uh, and he talked about the leopards, and he actually gave a warning to the collective West with regards to the leopards. I mean, he showed his, he expressed his his uh, his disgust, for lack of a better word, at the fact that you're going to have uh, leopard tanks from Germany. Uh, fighting the Russians, he says. He said that, you know, who would have ever imagined this? But uh, he also sent a warning, and he said that, you know, we're, we are going to reply to this uh, escalation. And so I wonder if Olaf Scholz kind of uh, read Putin's uh, spa statement, his speech, and, and changed uh, his direction a bit. Maybe this is a signal to Russia, you know, look, I'm just, I was too weak to, to say no, so I'm just trying to find a way to wiggle out of this, so I'm going to send these leopards, which, which are not going to, uh, to do anything. We have Lavrov saying that uh, Biden sending uh, weapons with 150 kilometer range just means that Russia's gonna have to push Ukraine further west. So it's just basically Lavrov saying, you know, anything that they throw at us, we're just gonna counter it, and we're just gonna push them further and further. Back, you have uh, another type of purge taking place in Ukraine as well. This time, uh, Elensky is going after, the SPU is going after uh, the former interior minister, Avakov, a really nasty guy who was involved in all kinds of uh, bad stuff, uh, including, I believe, uh, uh, Azov, and going after the man who made him, the man who created uh, Elensky, which is Kolomoisky. They're going after him as well. And then you have all of these articles about the entire situation in Ukraine coming out from uh, from the United States. You mentioned the Guardian as well, which is that that this is this is lost, plain and yes. simple. You also have the article coming from a Swiss publication, which claims that Burns traveled to Kiev and then secretly uh, offered Moscow a peace deal, which was twenty percent of. Uh, of Ukraine, essentially the Donbass for peace. Of course, the U.S. has denied this. The Kremlin has denied this. But who knows? Who yes. knows if this might have been the case? Maybe this was just floated. Anyway, my point in all of this is that you have all of this very, very bad news for Ukraine. 
for the Alevsky regime. It's clear as day that uh, this, this uh, project is crumbling. But the EU, they are playing theater and they're traveling to Kiev and talking about a Ukraine-EU summit to, uh, to fast track Ukraine into the European Union. And they all went to Kiev and they're all dressed in their, in their suits and they're all happy to see each other. They're, they're hugging each other and kissing each other and they're doing these little make-believe summits that everything is okay. This is, this is completely, I mean, I don't even have a words for it. They're, they're completely out of touch, the European leadership with what is going on. That's the way it seems to me. I don't know, maybe they're dumb. Maybe they know what's going on, but they're just going to, to, to play this, this role that, that they've been assigned. Or maybe they're, they're just getting wrong information. Maybe there are people that are telling them everything is going well. Go to Kiev and, you know, do your little Ukraine is going to enter the European Union event. It, it, it's so, it seems so out of place and, and so out of touch with reality. And the fact that Elensky is taking part in this shows that this whole situation is detached from the reality that is happening on the ground that even the United States is, admit, is admitting is happening, which to me signals that the collapse is coming because all of these people in Europe and in Kiev are completely in their own bubble. They are stuck in their own box and in their own bubble. They're having a little tea party, Alexander, with tea that's that's with, with cups that are not full of tea but are full of air. And they're pretending that this is a little tea party and they're having a good old time talking about Ukraine entering the European Union. I, you're, 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 that's all I have to say for the rest of this video. You are absolutely right because you're absolutely correct. I mean, the Europeans are, are, are rapidly losing all sense of reality here. And by the way, there's a stark difference, which we'll come to in a moment, between the Europeans who are losing all sense of reality and the Americans who are perhaps starting to grasp, or at least some Americans, some important Americans who are starting to grasp the reality of the situation. But, you know, let's go to the Europeans first. They all go off to Kiev. They're going to have this meeting. At the same time, other European leaders, the French in particular, apparently, the Germans to some extent, busy briefing that is going to be years, decades perhaps, before Ukraine joins the EU. Well, if that is so, why don't they simply say so? Why don't they tell Zelensky, look, we can't come to Kiev. This isn't this doesn't make any kind of sense. We are going through a pretense that has no reality. And one gets the sense that they're all part now of a kind of circus act that they just don't have the courage to get out of because it is a circus act. It's a pretend thing. Ukraine is failing. It is collapsing. Its military is buckling. You, read, you saw what I read in The Guardian about the fact that The Guardian is admitting now that people are being rounded up in, uh, um, in, um, on the streets in, you know, to, you know, to fill up the numbers. And the, the we all army. see the videos. No, it's all we see all the see videos. the videos. But the, Gar the Guardian yeah. is now it's talking everywhere. about it. The Guardian is now talking about it. They're talking about the fact that the army is becoming exhausted and it's got a suicide problem. So, I mean, you know, all of this, and at the same time, they all go along to Kiev, go through this ridiculous circus of pretense that Ukraine is going to join the European Union, even as the place is collapsing. Burns, you know, the, D the CIA director, 
and said that half the time that he was in Kiev, he was actually talking to people in Kiev while in bomb shelters. <laughs> I mean, that, that's the real reality. And, you know, all these people that are trundling off to Kiev, having these meetings, meeting with Zelensky, pretending that Ukraine is joining the European family, as they call it, even as everything falls apart. I mean, it is it is so weird. It is so bizarre that, again, it shows you how completely out of touch with reality they've become. And I don't think they have a way of escaping it, because when you live in this kind of imaginary construct that you've constructed, even if deep down you know that it's all nonsense, you have to, you find yourself trapped within it. Because, of course, if you try to escape the bubble, then, you know, you're exposed. So that's why they go along with, they go along with the pretense. But in the US, where people, you know, real politics, real discussion, takes place. You talked about this timeline. You talked about the summer. We have the chair of the House Armed Services Committee, Mike Rogers. He's just heard this briefing from the Pentagon that Ukraine isn't going to retake Crimea. He's read the Rand Corporation report that a prolonged war isn't in U.S. interests because the U.S. is depleting its stocks, its, its weapon stocks, it's uh, uh, um, in a position where it's becoming more vulnerable, not less, to confrontations with China in the future. Uh, and, of course, there's also the escalatory risks. So Mike Rogers comes out. He says this must end this summer. He says that um, Russia is never going to quit and give up Crimea. He says that uh, um, Zelensky needs to decide uh, what victory really would be and he says that the objective now must be to get putin and Zelensky sit down sitting down at the negotiation and talking to each other but of course when rogers talks about that he knows perfectly well that given that putin holds all the cards what he's actually talking about is ukraine sitting down and talking to the russians and talking in a way that would basically Surrender. A surrender. Exactly. I mean, that, that, that's the only kind of outcome that we can see. And going back to that report in that Swiss newspaper, I don't believe it really described what Burns was up to back in December. I, I mean, I don't believe that that was the case. I think if Burns had really made those kind of proposals then, we would certainly have heard about it by now. But I think it's a float. I think somebody is setting up a trial balloon finding out, signaling to the Ukrainians, this is what the United States is thinking. And I think this is what this is all about. You know, give up Donbass, give up the land bridge to Crimea, accept that you're going to lose all of this territory, save what you can save. And I think that's what this is really all about now. And I think this is what the uh, US is now trying to achieve far too late in the day. Why would the Russians concede these things when they're, you know, they're probably scenting victory? But who knows? Yeah, that's that's exactly what I took away from the Burns thing, that he was he's floating something. You could see it in the denial because I read the, the denials from uh, it was published by by Newsweek. They had a CIA spokesman and uh, he didn't deny the 
the land for peace pr proposal. He just said it was not accurate. And to me, that means that, that there, they prob there probably wasn't a real like, document, a thought out proposal. It was just kind of like, what do you guys think if we proposed X, Y, and Z? They're looking for a way out, and they're looking for a way out that saves them some face, at least the Americans. The Europeans, I have to admit, the Europeans seem like, like they're, they're in make-believe land. They're in make-believe land at this yes. moment in time. Yes, I, I completely agree. With, I mean, you know, we've discussed this many times, the contrast. Whatever you think about the U.S., it's, it's a nation. It's a real country. It's still got a real politics. It's got, real, it's got the real ability there to make for people to make decisions. You may not like the people there. You may not like the policies. You might find the political system utterly dysfunctional and completely corrupt. But it is still just a real political system. What you have in Europe is a virtual construct of a political system. It's incapable of making decisions. It lives in a fantasy world of its own creation, and it can't escape it. And the political leaders who, uh, they're not even real leaders, they're not even real politicians anymore. The people who operate the system or who appear to within Europe are trapped inside it. They can't escape it. They live in a bubble. If the bubble bursts, they've gone. <laughs> so that's why they pretend to go to Kiev. Well, they go to Kiev. They pretend to hold all of these discussions with Zelensky. It's all that they know how to do. They can't come up with any real solutions. They can't come up with any real ideas. Because, of course, if they do, they admit to the fact that as politicians, they don't really exist. Um, close out the video. Your thoughts on the, the SBU going after uh, the, interior, the former interior yeah. minister, Avakov and Kolomoisky. What do you think is going on there? I, I think it's all, all clearly all part of the, of the same purge, and I'm going to say it straightforwardly. I think that this is. I think the the party that is pushing this purge is the United States. I think this is what Burns's visit to Kiev was really about. I think they're isolating Zelensky. They're moving. They're 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 eliminating people who could be a possible danger to U.S. control of things in Kiev. And, you know, Avakov is an absolutely scary individual. He was in charge of the Interior Ministry for years and years and years. He built up all of these appalling organizations, you know, Azov, Ida. They were all very much uh, sponsored by him. He's got lots of connections and links in, uh, you know, right across this world of sort of semi-so-called um, you know, volunteer, ultra-rightist groups. I don't want to use the words, but we all know what I'm talking about. And them coming after him, the way that he's, people are now coming after him, just after the elimination of the interior minister himself, in what I think more and more people are coming around to thinking was an assassination attempt, was an assassination rather than an accident suggests that the ground is now being cleared in Kiev, perhaps ultimately to either sh shut, you know, get, it, get Zelensky himself out of the way and put somebody in, else in his place. Anyway, one way or the other, to open up some kind of political space in Kiev 
so that you can try and find some way to extricate the United States from the whole the Biden administration and the neocons have put it in. I wonder if you create the political space in order to extricate the United States, but also to win favor in a way, or at least to signal to Russia that you have now created a political space that would allow some sort of a, of a deal to be put together. Yeah, well, probably, though I would say this, the Russians by now are so mistrustful of everything that they hear from the US that, you know, I don't think this is going to be enough to impress them by itself. Um, the Russian ambassador to the US, a man called Anatoly Antonov, has actually said that you know, any proposals the United States comes up with, he was talking about arms control, but he means everything. Any proposals the United States comes up with must be not just firm, but reinforced concrete firm. And how does the United States reach that point of providing with the Russians with those kind of guarantees? But, you know, you may be right. I mean, you know, it, it does look like a clear out of this nest of vipers in Kiev to me. But, you know, where it's going to lead, who knows? I was just going to say, how, how do you reinforce that perhaps by, by signaling to, to Moscow that they can put their guy in? Well, absolutely. To, uh, to administer, to yeah, to administer a Ukraine that isn't, you know, swallowed up by Russia. At least the U.S. can come out of it and say, "Well, look, at least you know we have, and a country remains that is called Ukraine, and it yes. still has access to the Black Sea, and it's still there." Yes. But, you know, now it's Russia pulling the strings for now. Absolutely, the Russians I mean, will. Learn you may be I'm right. I'm speculating. I'm just yeah. speculating here, but yeah. yeah. Yeah, you may be right, but I'm going to say something straight away. I, I, I don't think the Russians are going to take any of this seriously unless there are political changes in another capital, not Kiev, but Washington. I mean, so long as they see people like Blinken and Newland and Sullivan and people like that still in the US government, I think they will be deeply suspicious. So I think that, you know, they will they will say to the uh, US, to whoever it is that they're dealing with, you know, Burns or whomever, look, we don't trust you one inch. And so long as these people are there, Blinken, Sullivan, Newland, all of those sort of people, don't expect us to trust you. If you're really serious, we've got to see a fundamental change in your foreign policy team. So, you know, bear that in mind. I think if we see, if we see the Biden White House finally sacking these incompetent and terrible people who've led the US into this nightmare, then perhaps we can talk about a serious negotiation between the US and Russia going forward. But, you know, until that happens, exactly. And I, I you know, again, I, I, very difficult to see it. You need a completely new administration. You need a completely new administration. Completely new and of course, the other problem is, and they're absolutely right in, what, in, what I'm, in, in saying what I'm, the, the Russians will say is, the other problem is we don't trust the president himself because he, he told us one thing and did another. We had that summit meeting between him and Putin in Geneva. 
and we thought that we were making progress and it clear we, we it, it was clear we weren't we had what looked like promises from him in you know virtual summit meetings he'd had with putin that the u.s wasn't going to install nuclear weapons nuclear missiles in ukraine and then we went when we came around and wanted to negotiate about it we were told that we couldn't so you know we don't trust him and we certainly don't trust his team so how can we seriously talk all right we will end it there at the duran.locals.com and also go to rockfin we are there as well and the duran shop 10 percent off use the code good day take care